a time of us to do what we were just being reminded of on the screen in this short video, a time for us to pray together as a church. One of the things to which Christ calls and invites his church. One of the things that marks out a church is that it prays, it prays together. And so join us this evening. If you've not been to a, a, a prayer meeting, you know, with, with, with other people, it, it, may, it, it could be a little intimidating to you, I realize that. And I want you to know, if you come tonight and, and are a part of this, this prayer time, you're not going to be called on. Uh, the, the, the participation in prayer is voluntary. Uh, no, no one's going no to put you on the spot and, and, uh, and, and ask you to pray out loud. Uh, and and you, are, you can participate by just joining in with those who are praying around you. One of, one of the ways we, we learn how to pray is, is by being with our brothers and sisters in Christ as they pray. And, and you'll be able to fully participate even with, with others as they lead out. But we would invite you here tonight, 6 o'clock, as we, as we come together to, to pray together here at the beginning of this year. Acts chapter 12, uh, this morning, the events... Uh, of Acts chapter 12 occur about 14 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, uh, about 14 years after what we read about in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came in great power and launched the church. And in between that time in, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 12, in those, in those 14 years we learn that the, that the church exploded with growth. Um, for example, there was, a, on, on the first day, there, there were 3,000 people, if we can imagine, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus Christ and became part of that church. And then we, we read not that far later that, 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 uh, that God was adding to the church daily those who were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And by the time you get to chapter 4 and verse 4, we read that the church had grown to about 5,000, and the text says about 5,000 men, which we would take to include. They've not, they've not counted the women and children as a part of that number. We also, by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, we have seen the first Gentile converts put their faith in Jesus Christ, which was hugely controversial. They have faced opposition already, and they have faced harassment and persecution and imprisonment and even martyrdom has already happened by the time we get to Acts chapter 12. The church and those believers has been dispersed from Jerusalem, and they've gone to the surrounding region of Judea, and they've headed north to Samaria, and in fact, they've already made it north as far as Antioch in Syria. Yet there was a strong core of the church that still remained in Jerusalem, which is where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 12. Let me just begin reading a few verses there. Now, at that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, 
and delivered him to four quads, squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So the chapter opens, if you will, with a pretty serious attack upon the church. Remember, the, it's not that old. church is about 14 years old. And there's a serious attack. And we read about this guy, King Herod. And, and in history, he's, he's the guy who was known as Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. You meet Herod the Great earlier in the Gospels, back in, in Matthew chapter 2. Herod is the Great is the one who sought to kill the infant Jesus. There, that story that we read about when the, with the coming of the, of the Magi and, and, and Joseph taking Mary and Joseph and fleeing to Egypt is because Herod the Great was trying to kill him. That's, that's this Herod's grandfather. The, this Herod that we read about here is also the, the nephew of a guy known as Herod Antipas. Okay, and The reason I tell you about him is because he appears in the Gospels as well. He's the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, And he's also the Herod before whom Jesus appeared when Jesus was put on trial in his passion. It was was that Herod who also at one time in his reign and in the life of, of Jesus had sought to kill Jesus. Harassing God's people seems to run in the Herod family. And so here in chapter 12, we open with this Herod who is attacking the church by executing James. Now, who's James? Well, James had a brother named John. James and John were two of the apostles, two of Jesus' 12 apostles. James and John had been fishermen by trade until Jesus called them to follow him. And James was one of the ones who, along with John and Peter, were part of Jesus' inner circle. Okay, three men that, that Jesus especially invested some time and energy in, and, and three of the disciples who had some, who had some additional pretty, pretty neat experiences with Jesus. For example, James was one of the ones who was with his brother John and Peter on the mount when Jesus was transfigured before their sight. So it's that James. Uh, he, he is also one of the ones who, along with his brother John, was known as the Sons of Thunder, so James, along with his brother John, they were the guys who, they'd been in Samaria, they'd been in the city in Samaria, and, 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 and the, the, the residents of that city had, had basically, you know, just dismissed them, had, had ignored them, had mistreated them, had spurned them. And, and James and John said to Jesus, let's call down fire on this city. Let's just wipe them out. Show, show them who you are. That was James, <laughs> was one of those, and and, and Jesus, you know, the, the, the gentle rebuke, hey guys, I didn't come to destroy men's lives, remember that, but to save them? It's our mission. James was a pretty significant presence uh, there in the beginning of the church, and I think that's suggested by the fact that he's the one that Herod targeted for execution. Killed him with the sword, he beheaded him. This action, as we read in the, in the text, it says it made the, the Jews happy, the, the leaders. Okay, so we still have these same leaders probably around and present who, who, you know, who had the, the, uh, the animosity towards Jesus. The, the, these leaders, they, they were happy about this. In fact, in, in those opening, those first chapters of, of Acts leading up to it, these are the, that, that, that's the group who had been persecuting the church. They're the ones who had been, who had been harassing the believers. If they could have, in that day, these are the guys who would have tweeted their approval. They would have published the op-eds commending Herod for what he had just done. 
in executing James. So we read in the text that Herod, being the consummate politician he is, he proceeds to arrest Peter. Now, if that made them happy, I'm going to get some double miles. I'll really be happy when I do the same thing to Peter. So Herod arrests Peter and puts him in prison. And the assumption is, as we work our way down through the text, that the same thing is going to happen to Peter as has already happened to James. This would have been a huge, huge blow to the church. There's a sense in which you could say this would have almost been one of those decapitations of the leadership. Herod just coming out to the top and like taking a swing, seeing if we can't wipe this thing out. Not to mention just the intimidation factor, if you will. A little bit of warning to those Christians there in Jerusalem. Listen, this is what Herod thinks of you. And this is what could lie in store for you as well. So you might want to think about that, church. You might want to think about that, those of you who are, who are following this Jesus. So they're facing certainly a crisis as a church, a crisis of opposition. You know, today's opposition is still real, but it comes in many shapes and sizes. Uh, here, it's, it's this going after the leaders of this church. There are brothers and sisters in Christ today who face the sword, who've been beheaded for Christ, who are in prison, who are tortured, who are being harassed for their faith. It still is happening 2,000 years later. Take, for example, I don't know if you've read the story about Pastor Wang Yi. Uh, He is the founder and pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, which is one of the three most populous cities in western China. He was arrested with 100 other of his congregants on December 9th, 2018, during a massive crackdown on Chengdu's largest unregistered church, which is part of the issue. He was pastoring an unregistered church. He was found guilty during a closed-door trial just this past December 26th on trumped-up charges of, quote, inciting subversion of state power and illegal business activities. And he had no defense lawyer present, wasn't allowed to have one. Pastor Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison. He's going to be stripped of his political rights for three years, He will have approximately $7,200 in assets seized, according to the Chinese government statement that was published. It's seen as a bit of a harsh um, sentence, but it's also seen to be intended as a warning for the leaders of the underground churches that they need to fall in line with the expectations of the Chinese government. Harassment, opposition, a leader taken away, imprisoned. We're not facing that opposition right now in our experience. Maybe some milder forms of, of harassment. You, you read, and I'm reading more and more stories about churches and Christian institutions being denied their tax-exempt status. I read stories of the denial of promotions or, or tenure to professors because of their beliefs. 
various colleges and universities. Opposition, harassment. And, and then there's the opposition to God and to the work of God that exists in churches that are proclaiming a false gospel. It's opposition. There, there are churches increasingly going after each other very publicly, fighting it out. Opposition. And then there's the opposition, I would call the opposition of our own passivity. The opposition of our own distraction in this world. The opposition of our own worldliness, which stands against the work of God. The opposition of our disunity. The opposition of our sin. There is the opposition, I think, and believe, the opposition to, to, to burning passion for Christ, which is caused by, in the words of Jesus, the loss of our first love. Uh, and, and in the words of Jesus, that's caused by our own lukewarmness. It hurts the church. It hurts the work of God. It hurts the cause of Christ. It hurts the testimony of Jesus. So, so opposition to God and to the work of God is a very real thing. They face it here in Acts 12. The church has faced it throughout its history. The church faces it today. All kinds of opposition. It's there. Well, what's the response of the church? Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. One leader down, executed, another in prison. And what did the church in Jerusalem do? They hire a lawyer to take care of the court. Now, they, they, of course, didn't have that kind of resource. They didn't have that kind of standing. They had, they had no power. They had absolutely no authority to sue the government. That wasn't even an option. They get on social media, hashtag free Peter now. Let's see if we can stir up some, let's get, let's get that to go viral. Let's see if we can stir up some things to, to get him out of that prison, put pressure on the leaders. Again, that, that wasn't an option available to them. How about we storm the prison? Okay, good luck. You got 16 guards. Peter is in chains. You got two, two guarded doors. You got a gate that you have to get through. That would have been a slaughterhouse. It would not have ended in the Christian's favor. What do they do? You, you see it in verse 5, right? There it is. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Why did they respond this way? Well, I mean, you know, what, what, was it their first instinct to, prayer, to, to pray? I mean, it could be. We see that happening throughout Acts. But, you know, the bottom line is they were powerless to release Peter. They've already lost one leader, about to lose another. There's nothing they can do to stop Herod except pray. Except pray. 
constant prayer was offered to God. Listen, they went over Herod's head. They went over the Jewish authorities' heads. They went directly to God because that's what Christians can do. That is our privilege. We can go to God. We can, we can talk to him. We don't, have to, we don't have to see if we can, you know, perchance get some appointment with some leader and try to persuade him to do what, what we think they ought to do. We can go to God. And that's what they're doing. We're not limited by the authorities. We're not limited to the resources that we have in this world. We can go to almighty God, all of us. That is our privilege in Christ. If you know Christ as your savior, if you have come into forgiveness and the life that he, that he has brought to you through his resurrection and through the spirit of God who is within you, you have the right to go to God anytime. You are granted access to his presence, to the presence of almighty God. We declared that in song. God, we need you. That's why this church gathered. God, we need you. Constant prayer was offered to God by the church. This wasn't individuals who stopped by to pick up a prayer list and said, oh, Peter's on the prayer list. I think I better pray for him this week. This isn't the church getting an email Gathering around their table to pray for prayer, though that'd be a, for Peter, that'd be a wonderful thing to do. Absolutely wonderful thing to do. No. Here in Acts 12, they came together. We saw that in that video that I started. They came together. And they prayed. And, 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 and across the city... We're, we're given that impression there in verse 5. Across the city of Jerusalem, where, where, these, where these assemblies met in, in, in homes, probably throughout the city, they've gathered for prayer. And then in Acts chapter 12, it's going to take us to one of those particular assemblies. Constant prayer. It, it, this, is, this is strong, desperate, persistent prayer. Can you picture it? Maybe, maybe not, huh? Maybe we can't. When was the last time you found yourself engaged in that kind of prayer? Constant prayer for him, for, for, for Peter. This is, they are united in what they are praying for. It is, it's united, it's fervent, it's constant with a singular focus. And it's the fate of their leader, it's the fate of Peter. This is, this is a, a focused time of prayer. This is vertical in nature. They're, they're not firing off buckshot prayers for anything that came to their mind. They're praying for Peter, God's servant, their shepherd, who is there to guide them and lead them in the work of God. This praying was focused upward. It's focused on God. It's focused on the purposes of God. That's what they've come to do. And this, this was the way of the church in the book of Acts. It's not the first time they've met together to pray. It's not the first time they saw God move mightily in response to their prayers. I mean, what else could they do? Today, we have so many other options when we face a crisis. So many other options. It seems like we get around to prayer when none of our other options work. I wonder... What do it take for prayer to become our first reaction to the crises of our lives? And this is not about guilt trips. It really isn't. It really isn't. 
I just wonder what it would take to draw us together and pray like that. Constant, fervent to God by the church, by us, for wisdom, for salvation of people that we've witnessed to and they've not turned to Christ, for spiritual breakthroughs in in our lives, for mended relationships. You see, the, the, the church recognized that their mission was spiritual and thus their most powerful resources were spiritual. So they came and they prayed together. Well, some interesting results. Some interesting results. In fact, in in this chapter, there were three. Three amazing results that came in answer to their prayer. First of all, verses 6 through 11, Peter was miraculously released from prison. That's what they were praying for. It happens. I mean, there's Peter... Must have known something about the peace of God. Chained to two soldiers, knowing what happened to his friend James, realizing that that's probably the plan for him. Peter is fast asleep in prison. I mean, so much so, the angel has to do a little bit of work to get him awake. Took him a little while to think, to realize, that no, he's not dreaming. This is actually happening as his chains fall off. Literally, his chains fall off his, his hands and his feet. And soldiers don't wake up. And he comes to the first door. You know what happens? The door opened. Guard post walks right through. Comes to the second door guard post. You know what happened? It just opened. He walks through. Comes to the gate. That's going to take him out to the main street of the city. What happens? The gate opens up for him. He's free, he's out in the street, no one chasing him, no one looking for him, angel's gone. God miraculously freed him from prison. First amazing result. But there's, there was another amazing result in that chapter, and I'm not going to take time to read down through it, but you go to chapter, to, to verses 20 to 23, you know what happened? You find that Herod was removed from the scene. God, God took Herod out. In a a rather dramatic way, God took Herod out. And he disappears the pages of the story from history. But there's another result, and you find that down in verse 24, where we are told that the word of God grew and multiplied. (laughs) The gospel spread and the gospel flourished Look at what God did in response to the church's prayer. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Would we like to, would we hope that maybe something like that could happen? I mean, I don't know whether, you know, whether it's Peter out of prison or, or, or not. We'd love to see some people come to faith in Christ because God answered our prayers. We'd love to see some breakthroughs in people's lives because God answered our prayers. response to the prayers of God people. But you know, one of the things that I love about the story is there's something that makes it very real and it's there in verses 12 through 16 and, and maybe you know that part of the story. Peter is freed. He makes his way to one of, these, one of these house prayer meetings. He knocks on the gate. Servant girl comes out 
to, to, to answer, uh, is sent out to, to answer the gate, and Rhoda comes out, and, and, and uh, hey, it, you know, hey, who, who's there? It's Peter. <laughs> she was, like, so shocked and so excited. She runs into the prayer meeting and says, hey, everyone, Peter's, Peter's, she didn't even let him in. I mean, it's, maybe, I think maybe that gives a little bit of a, of a sense of, of just, like, the, the, the surprise and disorientation. She runs in. Peter's out there. They said, you're nuts. They're, they're, it, you're nuts. It, it's not possible. Or, or I suppose she says, Peter's at the gate. And one of them says, shut up. There is no way. There's no way he's out there. You're crazy. But let's not ridicule them. Okay? Let's be encouraged that God answered their prayers in a way that superseded what they thought possible. I, I don't know, you know, what were they, they, they came together and prayed, and it could be they were just praying that, that you know, when, when dawn broke and it was time to bring Peter out to trial, that maybe there would be a change of mind on the part of Herod, and, and maybe when everything was said and done, you know, Herod would, you know, Peter would be acquitted and he would be freed and, you know, and, and would, would, come, would, would come back to them. Maybe that was on their minds. But, but what happened was not what they were expecting. Way beyond what they were expecting as they prayed for his, uh, for his release. They had not given up on prayer. They knew, go back to Acts 4, it was on, their only source of power. But they weren't expecting God to do something so immediate <laughs> or so miraculous. And this is comforting to me. You know, when I'm praying and I, I can't seem to drum up a lot of expectation of what will happen, it's okay. Because I'm not in this alone. Christ is praying with me. And he is praying for me. And, and he, just, he just fills in the gap. <laughs> he brings everything to my prayer life that I seem sometimes not to be able to bring. And, and I think it's amazing. You notice that, that God did more than just free Peter. <laughs> that was the immediate answer to their prayer. He, he, he changed the whole situation by dramatically removing Herod. And, and, and to add icing to the cake, the gospel spreads and the gospel flourishes. I mean, here is this bunch of frightened, uncertain believers who have assembled to pray with, on the one hand, huge expectations that, that somehow you know, Peter would get out of this, but on the other hand, in light of everything, small expectations And yet this frightened group of believers who assembled to pray with small expectations released a powerful miracle, removed a major obstacle, and furthered God's kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God great? Wasn't it Jesus, by the way, who taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And that's what God's doing. But let's not miss the point of the story. Peter won't always be released. Herod won't always die. But prayer will always be our power. The church prayed, and God did something. And God still works as his people pray. See, prayer, prayer is spiritual. I think that's one of the things that makes it hard sometimes. 
Because by all appearances, it looks like we're doing nothing. Prayer is spiritual. But it's the church's spiritual weapon in spiritual warfare. It's a spiritual tool that aids our spiritual tasks. It's our spiritual appeal for the Spirit himself. Until we learn that, we will be spiritually powerless. Our power is not in our program. It's not in our past accomplishments. It's not in our technology. It's not in our techniques. Power's from God. And he sees fit, as he wills, to unleash that through the prayers of his people. Let's go back to China for a moment to Pastor Yi. There was a, an article in Time Magazine online dated January 2nd, 2020. So that's how recent it is. And in that article, they said this, that the lengthy sentence and the secret proceedings show that the Chinese Communist Party feels threatened by the spread, by the rapid spread of Christianity in the country, especially especially from churches that operate outside the government rules, the, un, the underground church, the unregistered churches. That article said there's about 116 million Protestant Christians in mainland China, estimated this year. Christians in China are not exclusively Protestant, but predominantly Protestant. 116 million. Compare that with an estimated 90 million members of the Communist Party. And you can see why government leaders have cause for concern. Underground churches, this article said, are spreading like wildfire in rural areas in China. And according to the article, the Chinese government is afraid, listen to this, that more people, including less educated people, are turning to the church for their spiritual needs and not to official nationalism and patriotism. It's bothering the government. Because people are turning to the church rather than to them. Maybe we could learn some things from our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ. In a published letter, Pastor Yi expressed hope that God would, would use him. In, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, let's go to the next one. Uh, he, expressed, uh, he expressed the hope um, that God would use him to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom, listen to this, that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Back to the last slide. And that's their church. What are they doing? praying. They're praying. So here's a question for us. What might happen if, if we prayed together in a vertical way? Not, not all the horizontal. There, there, there's, there's time to pray for all these things, but, but that vertical focus for God's purposes. Not, not our plans, for God's purposes. 
and God's glory. Not, not our good, God's glory. What might happen if we prayed together for God's purposes and glory to be done through us? How might that strengthen our internal life as a church? How might that strengthen our external witness as a church? Someone, someone said to me just very recently, and it, it was encouraging to me. They said, you know, Northfield is a praying church. I, I was encouraged to hear that. Praise God. But we know that there's more that God has for us. We long to see his kingdom advance in our community, to see people to whom we have been witnessing saved, to see members who have wandered off return to Christ, to see healing for the hurting and the broken, to raise up a faithful generation. We long to remain true to Jesus Christ, even as our culture pressures us in other directions. And at the same time, we want to have influence for Jesus Christ through the love of Christ. How can we? How can we? What if we learned from our Christian forefathers whose constant prayer was offered to God? So how can we do that? Well, I invite you back this evening. I invite you to come to prayer breakfast on Saturday. We have prayer groups that meet Wednesday morning with our senior group and Wednesday evening. There's prayer, and let me encourage our ABFs as you pray. Keep this in mind. As we pray in smaller groups and in discipleship groups, this kind of praying, as we pray in our homes. Make a prayer group and pray. I want us to experience this, if you will, the, the satisfying work of God, however he sees fit, in response to our prayer. Jesus wants us to experience that. I mean, after all, he died and rose again and ascended so that we can experience that. This, my brothers and sisters, this, this is our power. This is our power. Father, help us, I pray. Help us. We, we, we know and we, we, we confess that we need your help, Lord. We need your help. There, there's probably not an area of our, of our lives, of our spiritual life, that we're, where we don't look at it and, and say, you know, I'm, I mean, there's good things happening, but we, we can look at any area of our life and say, oh, I, just, I, I would wish for something more, something better. And, and in prayer, Lord, it, we, know, we know that you call us to prayer, and, and, and there's probably not a one of us who, who just is going to go around and say, you know, I'm, I'm just praying all I need. I'm, I'm satisfied. There's nothing more that should be happening in my life in that area. We, we know that that's not true, Lord. And, and the same in our church. And so we're just looking to you, Father. We, we want our prayer life to flow out of our love for you. We want our prayer life to flow out of our, of our sense of desperate need for you, Lord. If, if you don't work, if you don't empower, if, if you're not the one that's doing the work, Lord, we're, we're going we're gonna to tire ourselves out to no end. We need you, Lord. We need you to work. We need you to convict of sin. We need you to open blind eyes. We need you to, to woo the lost, Lord, to, to, the, to the beauty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need you to dig deeply into our lives, Lord, and help us to see what you see and, 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 and to work on what you want us to work on as we trust in you, Lord. In, in prayer, we're just simply, we're simply saying we trust you. We don't 
trust ourselves. We don't trust everything. We trust you. Because Christ has done the work. He's already won the victory. So, Lord, our eyes are upon him. Our trust is in you. May that trust somehow find its way worked out in our prayer life, individually, as families, and as a church. Because we want you. We want your work, your glory, your will. Work through us to that end, Father. Work through us. And we will give you the the rightful thanks and the rightful praise for what you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.